0: We stand as we read today's sermon passage. The entire passage is Mark 1, 21 through 39, and I'll be reading 32 through 39. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases, He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. Will you thank uh, Rick and Brad and Mitch and our worship team? If uh, you and I have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Nathan Harrison, and I get the privilege of getting to be pastor here at West Bowles. But um, this morning, I'm going to add an an also known as um, junior high basketball teammate of Troy that was up here singing earlier. And... I mean, life just takes funny turns, Troy. I mean, I was going to be starting center for the Nuggets back then, and you were going to be power forward, and, you know, God just steered it a little bit. So, well, thank you for being here, and those of you joining us online, thank you as well. Um, As I look at the passage this morning, um, and and Rick Rick read eight of the verses out of Mark. We're going through Mark as a church. and, And one of the things that just continues to jump out is this thing that we talked about as a church the very first week of the year, as far as a resolution, as a church. And it's this, this idea of, of a heart for people. And as you go through Mark, especially the first third of Mark, God's heart for humanity just could not be more clear. Um, but it, it, there's something interesting, because last week we looked at it, Jesus' ministry had begun, and already this week, you begin to see this, this obstacle that kind of starts to get in the way. And you'll see this throughout Mark. It's the crowd. The crowd shows up. And the crowd, while, while we look at that and we think, wow, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, the more people, the better, right? But a crowd can often send us in the wrong direction. I was reminded of this a few years ago. I was over at our kids' elementary school, and they had a Veterans Day assembly like an appreciation assembly. So parents of the kids could come because the kids put on uh, uh, like a, they did a song and some of them read some stuff. And so I, I showed up there and there's some parents sitting in the back of the gym and they've got the whole school in the gym. And it was so nice to remember that. You know, it's pre-COVID. You could, you, we could all be in there together. And I see these two veterans sitting up on the stage on these chairs. And I was asking the guy next to me, you know, how did they find these guys? And uh, they said, well, one of them's Navy, one of them's Air Force. I was like, I know, but like, are they in trouble? Because they, they, they're here at a, an elementary assembly, and they're going to get peppered with questions. And, and, you know, they deserve a cup of coffee, a standing ovation. And I just thought, these poor guys. So this one guy gets up. He had to be, I think I heard he was like 80 or 85 years old. He hobbles to the microphone in the center of the stage and, and he begins to talk about his, his time and service in the Navy. And one kid asked him, what was the name of the ship you were on? And he said the USS Hamner, I believe. And then he added, it later was sold to Taiwan and it sunk and just added that little detail. And then he kept talking about his time and service. Well, they have a question and answer later for the kids. So all these hands go up and he calls on a kid. He just picks a kid at random. In this kid, this, this is where crowd mentality starts going sideways. This kid's like, how far did that ship sink when it sunk? <laughs> and the guy was like, to the bottom of the ocean. And I was like, this is why I was thinking these guys were in trouble. I mean, what did they do to deserve this? So veterans, that's your thank you for serving our country. You get, you get Q&As from elementary kids. Well, it doesn't stop. So he calls on the next kid. And the next kid, he... he raises his hand, asks this question. He's like, well, was there bread on the ship? Because my mom says wet bread is just no good. <laughs> and I was like, this is going, like somebody, there's got to be a, a moderator to stop this. Next kid, raises his hand. Did you ever fight with a sword? Like Darth Vader has a sword. Did you ever fight with a sword? Finally, he gets to the fourth kid. I'm like, I can't believe they've let this go four questions. And this kid's like, do you know, do you know Matt? He's my friend. He's sitting right there. I was like, what? What happened? This is supposed to be a veteran's appreciation thing. And I just thought, that's exactly what happens. A crowd, a crowd can take things completely sideways. And you see this as Jesus is beginning his ministry. In fact, I want to start a handful of verses um, before where Rick was reading, where he picked up reading. But when we get to what Rick read, I, I believe there's an emphasis for us as a church specifically. But to understand that emphasis, we've got to start a handful of verses back. And so this is Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says, they went to Capernaum. This is Jesus. And at this point, he's got four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now, this is going to be really Jesus' home base of a lot of his ministry in Capernaum. Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. See, in other words, the teachers back then would say, well, this teacher says this, and this teacher says this, and you got Jesus who's not pointing at any human teacher. He's not pointing at any of them. And the people are struck by it, and they can't believe the authority that he is, he's preaching with. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you notice he's using the word us, as in there's more than just him in there. This man has been possessed by not just an impure spirit, but one that speaks in we form, as in there's many of us. Excuse me. Jesus says, be quiet. Be quiet. In other words, he's not just going to teach with authority now. Now his deeds are going to vindicate that authority. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And if you're in the crowd, if you're sitting there in that, in that synagogue, you begin to see something you have never seen before. And it sets the crowd in motion, this crowd mentality. Verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives, to, gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Now, that word amazed there. If you were to look at the original language, there's something so interesting. That word amazed that, that we can imagine, we can understand with our, our English definition. If you were to look at how Mark uses it in the Greek word, it's used three places. Three places in all of the New Testament, once here and twice in Mark chapter 10, but each time it's used, it's used in a situation where the people are amazed, but then somebody has to come back around and explain what they just saw to them again, except for here. In other words, it's possible that they were completely amazed, but not understanding what they saw. In fact, you heard it in their question, what is this? What is this? This is totally different than anything we've ever seen. And what was true for them can be so true for us, can't it? We can get so caught on amazement. We can get so, you know, in in this rut of chasing after amazement that we forget to see what God is doing right in front of us. As you read about this crowd, it becomes clear that they locked on, as many people did, they locked on to miracles, they locked on to signs. And many of them overlooked who this was, that this was a Savior. And this was the issue that the Jews had. You know, the Jews had, they they had failed to discern what God was unpacking with this Messiah. It didn't once occur to them that this Messiah, this Savior, was one that would be rejected. And that would would become a sacrifice on their behalf, on our behalf. Many of them had notions of a Messiah. They, They knew the prophecies, but they imagined that he was maybe impersonal where they imagined that he was going to come with military might and that he was just going to destroy the Romans that were just keeping them, holding him down and oppressing them. But none of them, none of them considered that this was a Messiah who had come for a much bigger purpose. In other words, they were looking at this Savior with selfish interests. And it's easy to do that, isn't it? I mean, we all get excited when we see amazing things. We hear amazing things. In fact, the next verse says this in uh, verse 28. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And so here they are. They're running out. They're telling everybody. And this, at first glance, could be a great thing if they understand who he is. But in our amazement, can't we miss a Messiah? Can't we do that? I came across an interview from a guy at a hot air balloon festival down in New Mexico. And uh, they had been interviewing this guy, weather had basically grounded all the hot air balloons. And so he couldn't go up, and in his interview, he said the most profound thing. He said, they said, well, how do you feel about this? He said, well, I'd rather be on the ground, wishing I was in the air, than in the air, wishing I was on the ground. And this plays out in life, doesn't it? I I, I also came across a quote from the great Dallas Cowboys football coach Tom Landry uh, from back in the day. And and shortly after the Cowboys won the Super Bowl, let me say that again, the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. Sorry, Will, if you're listening or if you're here. But um, what he said was that the prevailing overwhelming emotion after they won the Super Bowl for three days was one of total letdown. In other words, they'd reached the summit, they they had accomplished the thing that they set out to do, and yet they walked around and many of them said, I I just thought there was more than this. I thought there was more. I've I've heard that echoed early on in Tom Brady's career after he won his fourth Super Bowl. He did an interview with Sports Illustrated and they said, you know, how do you feel after four Super Bowls, winning four Super Bowls, your MVP in three of them? And he said almost word for word the same thing. I just thought there would be more to this. We keep reading this account, and you see there is, there is more. Let's keep going. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. In other words, this is Peter, and, and many people don't know Peter was married. So Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Now, did you catch that there? I mean, it's, it's subtle, but I wonder if that could guide us. They told Jesus about her. See, a lot of times, you know what we do, especially, especially in the world of Christianity, We think evangelism at all costs, and yes, we should go share the good news, but we run out the doors, and we we are convinced we need to go tell them about Jesus. And yet there's something so subtle here. What would it look like if we were talking to Jesus about them before we ever even got to them? Because you know what he would be faithful to do? To prepare hearts so that you're not trying to make this all happen on your own. So you don't have to be so disappointed if it doesn't go the way you think it ought to go because much damage has been done to non-Christians by Christians that want to force and force and force and force because we take it into our own hands. And so they told Jesus about her. Verse 31. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she, this is so interesting, she began to wait on them. When was the last time you got up from a fever and you're like, oh, yeah, let me turn around and just, you know, make dinner for everybody. Let's have guests. No, there's a recovery time. And I just got to say this. I, I still remember sitting in class at seminary. We were talking about this passage. And uh, I just thought this was so, I got a giggle out of this. They're so we're talking about these theological issues. You know, we're going into all these you know, five letter or five syllable words that I can't even pronounce, and this guy, he's just silent and he he was always so vocal in class. And the instructor noticed and said, Hey, what's going on? He's like, This passage is just like, it's really like messing with me. And he said, Okay, what's the problem? He's like, Jesus loves mother-in-laws. <laughs> what? And the instructor was like, is there, wow, is there something we need to, you want to share with the class? Uh, side note, my mother in law is in here. Vicki, I was not that guy, okay? I love my mother in law. Yes, Jesus loves mother in laws. So let's close in prayer. All right, we'll see you next week. <laughs> but this is so interesting to me because this healing led to service, this healing led to serving other people. But what happens next is a picture of what healing can also do. And and it's not necessarily a terrible thing on the surface. But if we have healing in our lives without understanding who the one is who has healed us, then we get something different. Verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Now if you if you know anything about ancient Capernaum, it's 900 to 1500 people. So this sanctuary seats about 1100 people, so you can imagine if this if every seat was filled, you'd have probably the population that was at the door of that house that night. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak. Because they knew who he was. And this is getting towards something that we'll see in Mark. And we'll talk about this. Called the Messianic secret. You know you constantly saw Jesus saying. Nope don't go talk to people about this yet. And part of that. Was because the crowd often worked as an obstacle. Against those that Jesus was trying. That he had this heart to get to. And, and if a crowd was in the way. It made it more difficult. To get to him. That was part of it. And so anyhow. <clears throat> He wouldn't let him speak because they knew who he was. And so suddenly you've got this massive crowd at the door and you've got the healing they had all seen and heard what had happened in the synagogue. And you have a healing that maybe didn't lead to service as much as it led to a sensation. And I believe that that is really even the fine line that I have walked on both sides of ever since Jesus affected and turned upside down and changed my life. That there are times where his healing, his healing touch in my life leads to service. And then there are times where I I want it to to be sensational. And I want it to be this emotional high. And I want it to be the mountaintop all the time. Here's the problem. You can't live there, right? And and if we go out these doors and we convince people that it's just constantly a sensation. And and it's just stupendous. and, And there's all this incredible, it just feels wonderful all the time. We're misrepresenting the identity of the one who has saved our lives. And is he capable of all that? Of course. Of course he is. And so we have to ask ourselves, is his healing touch on my life? Does it lead to serving other people? Or am I just looking for the next sensational thing? Because you will be let down over and over and over if you do it. Uh, There's an author named Max Dupree. He shares this story about the, I guess, world-renowned, I never knew this before this, uh, tomato growers in um, central California. And so these tomato growers, they they had these incredible fields that they would pick tomatoes from, but they had this problem. And the problem was they would pick these tomatoes, and they were known for their flavor and their texture and, and everything else, But how did they get these tomatoes from California to a salad bowl in Chicago or, you know, to a market in Boston? How could they get them across the continent without them being bruised? Because inevitably, they were shipping out these tomatoes, and then it would get to Chicago, it would get to Texas, it would get to Boston, it would get anywhere but California, and they had bruises on them. And many times, I know we don't like to admit this, we we judge a book by its cover and a tomato by its bruises anyway and and these tomatoes would get tossed and so they began to utilize something called agro technology so it's just agricultural technology and they they had these machines that would go through the fields and they would pick these tomatoes that they would be while they were yellow but still firm so not fully ripened yet And so the machines would pick the tomatoes and then they'd put them on a conveyor belt and they would put them under a special kind of light for seven seconds that would just turn them rosy red. They also figured out a a way to package them that they could put them in a styrofoam container, drop it from 20 feet up, and it would be unaffected, each tomato. So they ship out all these tomatoes and then they run into their next problem. Because the tomato that showed up in the salad bowl in Chicago or the one that showed up in the market in Boston, the people who purchased this, said, here's the problem. It doesn't taste like a tomato. And I thought, there it is. There it is. So often, we, we try to manufacture disciples, don't we? We can manufacture, if we get people aimed at this crowd mentality, at the next exciting, sensational thing, we can forget in the process to talk with Jesus about the people we're going to and bring about a different fruit. Now, here's where I believe Jesus leads us and becomes our answer. And he does something, he says something that is just so sideways to what you and I tend to think every single day. Listen, listen to this next set of verses in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I used to, I remember years ago, even while I was in seminary, I would just overlook the Greek part of the language. But there's something so interesting in this, because when it says solitary place, Mark uses the exact same word that he used earlier in Mark chapter 1. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, that solitary place that God was earlier in Mark 1 was the desert. What was happening in the desert for Jesus? He's being tempted. So as I read this, I thought, is it possible that Jesus was being tempted? I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about the last time you had a lot of voices in your ear. Think about the crowd in your life. Is it not a temptation to go the way of the crowd? to do what the crowd wants you to do. And so he's in this solitary place. I don't know. Mark doesn't specify if Jesus is specifically being tempted. It's just interesting he's in the exact same place that he was when he was tempted before. <clears throat> Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, and this is, these are the words we'd all like to hear at some point, wouldn't we? Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. But you know what? He'd been ready. Because Jesus had prioritized prayer. And Jesus knew this that God's perspective and perception of him was far greater. And it was far more abundant. And it was far more fulfilling than the perspective of any crowd on his life. And so Jesus replied, verse 38 Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages. So I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Oh, wait a second. Jesus, there's, there, there's like anywhere from 9 to 1,500 people that, that want to follow you right now. No, no, let's go. Because that is why I've come. You remember that message? He wanted to preach repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus looked around, and as I look at what he says, that is why I've come, you realize that he had a different emphasis. He had a different purpose. He was playing a different game, and while it looked similar, he was saying, no, no, no. There's a better prayer than God amaze me. It's God use me. A much better prayer than God amaze me, because that's, that's really where we live in our American culture, isn't it? God, I just want you to amaze me. I just want you to open the sky. I want you to speak. And yet Jesus goes, no, no. I'm going to push back on the crowd. I'm going to go to them. God, use me. Use me. Use me. Use me. And in doing so, he's showing the disciples. This is about quiet submission to Jesus more more than this loud applause that doesn't understand who he is. There's, there's a book called Into Thin Air written by a man named John Krakauer. He was part of a climbing expedition up Mount Everest back in 1996. And part of that expedition was a, a woman from Japan named Yasuko Namba. She was 46 years old. And her, she, had, she had scaled six of the world's uh, seven highest mountains. And so this was her last one. She wanted to be the oldest person to scale Mount Everest. And so as they began up Mount Everest and, and things went on and went on, uh, John Krakauer, this, uh, this author, he says, as we got closer to the top, he said, I still remember she got restless. And she began to start to push back or push past the people in the line going to the summit. And she eventually got to the summit and, you know, got that, that few minutes. You only, you only have a couple minutes. You can even be up there. And she got her pictures, and she officially became the oldest person to scale Mount Everest. And yet on the way back down, there were, there were signs of exhaustion and a blizzard hit. And, and she and a few others actually succumbed to the conditions. And as John Krakow, as he wrote, as he continued this story, he said, Unfortunately, she forgot the cardinal rule and the goal for all climbers it is not to get to the summit, it's actually to get back down. And I thought, How interesting! How interesting. That we have a Savior who, what did he show us? Yes, there's a summit one day. And there's a relationship with him that is the summit. I mean, that's where we overflow out of. It's where we operate out of. But your goal is to go back down to serve because that's exactly what he did. See, a much better goal, a much better prayer than God amaze me is God use me. And in doing so, God gets to use us to convey his heart for humanity. And then we read this last verse from the passage, verse 39. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Four takeaways for you as we close this morning. Number one, I mean, I just look at this this one verse and and I think about this passage. And there are a few things we just got to know. Number one, the question The question for us as a church, as Christians, as followers of Jesus should not be how many are here, but who's not here? Who's not here? Here's Jesus looking at a crowd. He says, no, let's go there. I need to go to the ones I haven't gotten to yet. Who's not here? And I I don't mean like your friends and family that they go to church somewhere else. I, I really don't mean that. I mean, who are the ones that maybe couldn't set foot here? And that we go to them with the goal, not even of necessarily having to get them here. But who, who can't be here? I mean, are you aware we, in this church, we have shut-ins that physically cannot be here? So can we go to them? Could we go to them? You know, we, we have those that just, they just, they just, it's, it's a distance. They can't be here. I got an email from somebody in Texas that joins us each week. I didn't even know this person joins us. But who's not here? Who can't join us? And my friends online, I have to share with you, I know there are many of you that y- you just, you can't be here yet. You know, there's there sickness, there's traveling, there are conditions that you just can't come yet or maybe not comfortable with no masks yet. But if you're sitting there and it's just you've gotten comfortable and it's just too easy to sit at home, I'd urge you, come back. You got, we all have to have this in mind. We do. So instead of how many are here, who's not here? Second, everywhere you go, everywhere you go, people have their place of worship. That doesn't mean that they have a church or a synagogue. But when Jesus went to their synagogues, you know what I bet Jesus encountered, and he probably already knew because he's God, right? But everywhere he went, people are worshiping something. Every place you go, the second you leave these doors, you go out these doors. Somebody is worshiping something, which, which sets up point number three. Every single place you go, you have a pulpit. You have a pulpit. Yes, we want you to invite people, but you know what? More than that, we want to equip you to go to people, to be able to go to them and say, hey, I, I see where you are, and I'm here to give you the good news of the kingdom of God. Finally, this, as long as we're not in conversation with him, we are subject to the whims of the crowd. As long as we're out of conversation with God, we are subject to, we're carried along by the whims of the crowd. So this is where our savior saves us from ourselves. When we're drawn to a crowd and the crowd is whispering and the crowd is tugging and the crowd is pulling, he says, no, no, no. Come away to a quiet place. Spend some time with him. And you know what he'll do? He is faithful. He is faithful after you've talked with him to show you so much about the people you go to, mainly his heart for them. And so as the worship team comes back up, remember, a better prayer than God amaze me is God, use me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Mark. I mean, I mean, just a few weeks into chapter one, and there is so much to chew on. But Lord, I pray that this week, would you begin to open our eyes and illuminate your word and nudge our hearts toward what it is you are doing in front of us? And while it's easy to sit back and, and hear the voice of the crowd and be drawn to that, Lord, pull us, pull us into time with you, And even if we got to come kicking and screaming, Lord, remind us that you are right there, ready with your perspective. And not just your perspective, not just your wisdom, but your heart. Because it's from that place that we go to others. And so, Lord, uh, show us. Show us somebody this week. Show us who's not here. Show us those we can go to and convey your heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.